Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. This one is for the ladies who lunch. Harmony had a bad time this week, friends. <laughs> I mean, that, that that goes with how that scene goes in this movie, but also that's kind of how I fucking feel about this movie. <laughs> oh, so- sorry to just put that out on Front Street. <laughs> oh, friends. Oh, oh, friends. Our second movie for May Musical Month is one that if you were a teenager or close to being a teenager in 2003 and were interested at all in musical theater, this movie was probably the best thing you had ever seen. Uh, no one can say teens have good taste, but you know <laughs> what? There's plenty of garbage I liked as a teen too, so who am I to judge? So there are a number of movies that we could have done for May Musical Month, but Camp is one that was requested a lot last year when we did our first May Musical Month. And I thought, you know what? I haven't watched it in a while. I don't know how it's held up. I know that there are some aspects of it that I think are going to be a little questionable uh, Mm -hmm. through a nearly two-decade-later lens. And um, I was right. But this is a movie that I really wanted us to talk about for that exact reason. Sometimes, when we have these time capsule movies, they are so ridiculously important for the time period. And years later, as the world evolves they become out of step. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we can hold those two truths simultaneously. So today, friends, we are, uh, we're going to try to even, even these scales a little bit. Sure. (laughs) Sure. So Harmony, what was your knowledge of camp before going into this episode? Oh God. Um, Well, camp was actually kind of one of the, early movies we put on the list of stuff we wanted to cover for the podcast because Mm -hmm. originally when we were thinking of like when we were being playful and thinking of theme months it was like what if we do a summer camp theme in like the summer Mm -hmm. like july or something but we ended up settling on may musical month because i made a bad pun one time Uh uh-huh and then i ran with it (laughs) yeah and we already were doing themed things in october obviously for spooky stuff And June's not officially committed fully to queer films, 
but it kind of it, at least some of June is committed to queer th- films. Mm-hmm. So it was just a lot of themes back to back to back. So we just abandoned the summer camp part. But this was one of the things that was mm-hmm. on that list originally. Mm-hmm. And when we were going to do stuff for this month, it was like, shouldn't we do like high school musical too? It's it's summer themed. We're it's the end of the school season. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we could do Camp Rock. I've never seen that, but I know it's a bit more high profile. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard a single human ever talk about Camp 2003 ever. <laughs> and BJ goes, no, this is the one we're doing. <laughs> and wouldn't tell me anything about it. No, and that was very intentional because this is a movie that is so much like existing in the vacuum of 2002, 2003, that it was really important to me that I did not sway you in any way. Uh, no, it, once the experiment realizes they're being observed, then it skews the data of the experiment. Exactly. And Thank you for letting <laughs> me be the guinea pig. You're, you know, you're welcome. Um, so camp, for those who don't know, this was an independent release um it did fine at the box office considering it was not in a lot of theaters um and it did pretty okay because theater kids were really rabid about this movie Um, are you saying theater kids have passion uh yeah yeah i am i sure (laughs) am um fandango does not have a synopsis for us i did have to go to imdb and there were two options i could either read the one that was written by somebody who clearly had to include a synopsis for this movie or else they would lose their job that day and then there is one by somebody who clearly cares a whole lot about this movie is it too much no it's just someone who put a little bit more thought into it i'm, I'm a little scared but so i'm gonna I, go with that one uh, okay misfits and their lives back home A group of young people live it up at musical theater camp. While the sports counselor is completely ignored, the kids spend all their time in rehearsal for a grueling schedule that involves a new show every two weeks. Several personal stories come to the fore. Is talented golden boy Vlad honest in his feelings about Ellen? Can cross-dressing Michael have a relationship with his parents? Will one-hit wonder musical playwright and now camp counselor Bert Hanley remain mired in drink and cynicism? Fireworks are in store when Fritzy, who slavishly serves glamour girl Jill, is finally told to get a life. And the parents of Jenna, whose jaw has been wired shut in a compromise to avoid being sent to fat camp, learns a valuable lesson at the summer's big end-of-season benefit. So what can be said about that summary of this movie is that this is just a bunch of B plots at a summer camp and there's no real plot. Correct. This this movie is a bunch of sort of meandering vignettes that pop in and out of each other. Mm-hmm. And I would say, dare I say, that narratively, it doesn't make for a satisfying film at all. <laughs> Now, before we get into why you feel that way and why sure. I may or may not agree. Ooh, ooh devil's advocate. <laughs> we can't both be grumpy. <laughs> it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Oh, my favorite. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, 
our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV Homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. This announcement is for our listeners back home in Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth, a black and queer liberation celebration, is back. Taking place on Saturday, June 18th from noon to 6 p.m. at Black Punks Press, 4701 Perkins Avenue, Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth will feature live music, drag performances from local talent, art, free community, and harm reduction resources, local vendors, food, and educational workshops. For those that don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday for reverence, remembrance, and celebration. Through intentional planning and organizing, Mix Juneteenth will capture the spirit of Juneteenth holiday by providing a liberatory space that adheres to a black, queer, feminist praxis that centers abolition, community, solidarity with all oppressed communities, and anti-bigotry. Mix Juneteenth is a space that explicitly promotes an environment of respect, civility, and liberation that is free of harassment and police presence. Mix Juneteenth is a free event with a suggested donation of $7 and $10 for non-black individuals. Pay up. No one will be turned away for inability to pay, though. Proceeds will be used to compensate performers and offset the cost of the event. Tickets can be reserved at https colon backslash backslash linktree slash Mix Juneteenth. And remember, Linktree is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E backslash mix Juneteenth. Alrighty, so we have played in the sandbox of 2002 to 2004 a bit, but I'm really curious, Harmony, what kind of context are you bringing to the table for camp? So trying to look at the other releases in relation to camp is weird for two reasons. One, this is an independent film, and independent films don't really follow trends or have much in common with what's going on at a larger scale. So trying to connect dots doesn't really work with that. But also, um, this is like a weird middle ground, uh, like ahead of its time, behind its time kind of film that Mm -hmm. is very baffling to look at for when it was released. Mm -hmm. So we're obviously past like the 90s gay renaissance that we would have cinematically. With like Gregoraki and New Queer Cinema and all that. All all of that, like a a number of drag queen films, uh, Jeffrey, like just uh, so many gay films came out of the 90s. Mm -hmm. I think the birdcage might still be the highest grossing queer film ever released. Um, Last I checked it was, and that was not recently, but still the nineties was very fruitful for seeing queer cinema. Then like nine 11 happens. The Bush administration happens. gets kind of depressing and goes underground for a little bit there. Mm -hmm. So it's behind the times, but also ahead of its time in that we haven't gotten the next revival of queer cinema. We are six years removed from Glee. We're still three years removed from High School Musical. So like mm-hmm. the singing and dancing theater kid equivalents that would become extremely popular to the mid-late 2000s haven't happened yet. Correct. So it's in this dead zone. Also, it feels in between ages 
mm-hmm. because other releases are stuff like What a Girl Wants, uh, the Lizzie McGuire movie, Holes, Agent Cody Banks, Freaky Friday, and I guess Love Don't Cost a Thing Ugh. to a to a lesser degree uh, with those contemporaries. Uh-huh. But for the most of those, like there's like Nickelodeon and Disney releases, and these are st- with teen characters mm-hmm. and teen actors. But they're meant for a younger demographic. Right. So on the opposite side of that coin, you have other independent releases that are significantly more mature, like Party Monster or mm-hmm. 13. Oh, yeah. And in between all of this is Camp, which feels like a Disney production or a Nickelodeon production or even something that would exist maybe on Teen Nick, like a, like a Degrassi type thing. Mm-hmm. But they also swear mm-hmm. and they're mean in a way that like younger like pre-teen young adolescent properties aren't um also like there's heavy alcohol use it's inherently a gay story which immediately makes it pg-13 it's such a weird mix that feels like it's fighting itself i would agree and i like that you bring up degrassi because camp to me has always felt like a spiritual successor to that sort of energy where you are watching a movie that is treating teen problems with seriousness and like the utmost respect like it is a problem that michael played by robin de jesus i love you so much you're magnificent is somebody who enjoys cross-dressing and like tries to go to prom and drag and then gets the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, like, that, that that really promises a tone for this movie and a certain level of oomph that the rest mm-hmm. of the movie does not really deliver on. Totally. But it's like this very intense moment that almost feels like a very special episode kind of thing that you would see on Degrassi, but that's the whole movie. And it doesn't ever feel like ham-fisted. It just feels like teens that are being teens and they're dealing with their issues as they happen in real time and they're processing them as they happen in real time which is something that narratively as a movie does not work like that's not good storytelling no but in terms of like how teenagers actually function this is very accurate Mm -hmm. um i cannot even begin to describe the amount of times that when i was teaching junior high and into like some of the older like teen ages um teaching high school where kids would just drop like really dark or traumatic or like horrifying statements that you could tell were so normalized in their brain that you did, like they didn't understand how intense that was. Oh yeah, I mean it's normal for them because they don't know anything else. Right. It's it's normal for them because this is just how they exist in the world, which is what we see a lot of in this movie, where you will have characters be like, "Yeah, my parents uh, wired my jaw shut because they're concerned about my weight," and like it's just a matter of fact presentation. Or my parents don't understand that I'm gay and they don't really talk to me and it's a really weird thing. And they don't really like explore it outside of like surface level. No, they. this movie has like a lot of threads that it untangles and Mm -hmm. then just chooses to ignore for the rest of the movie. Which like I can't tell if I love or hate Mm -hmm. because I can see why that would be really, really frustrating from like a viewership standpoint. Oh, it's it, it's the opposite of Chekhov's gun. Right. We present you a million guns and then don't fire any of them. Right. But then at the same time, I'm like, but that's so much like how teenagers exist sometimes. Where 
it's just kind of a thing and it's not a big deal and they don't treat it like it's a big deal, even though it very much is a big deal and they probably should. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we see that explored very often. I just think that it doesn't work structurally for a movie. No, this feels like it should have been like five or six 20 minute episodes. I would agree with but that. Then it also just wouldn't have a satisfying season finale. Right. It just doesn't. <laughs> right. So I, it's just, it's it's a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's like trying to swim upstream mm-hmm. while also wanting to go tubing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just so many baffling things that don't work if you think about it as an adult. I think if you're just going along for the ride as like a weird, like overly dramatic teenage slice, slice of life. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. It works. Mm -hmm. My job is to analyze it, and also I'm 30. Right. No, and (laughs) I think that's a bad movie, I think, to watch as an adult for the first time. Agreed completely. And I think that's a very good thing to point out because I remember when I first saw Camp, I was 13. I was very young. Mm -hmm. And it spoke to me in a way that a lot of movies hadn't at this point. Because it's queer and it's theater. Well, yeah, it's queer and it's theater, but more importantly than that, like it's also at my age group. And like the things they're dealing with are things that people my age were dealing with. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this is such like an in-community theater movie was a big deal to me because part of like the like the central theming of this movie is that outside of theater camp, all of these kids are losers. Like they get made fun of, they get picked on because like you said, we haven't hit the glee revival of musical theater kids. We haven't mainstreamified. It. Right. So you still were a total weirdo if you were into theater. Like it was you were a punching bag. It's the same way that like comic book fans used to be until Marvel became the most like profitable anything anything that in star wars <laughs> like back in the day if you liked things like star wars or comic books or star trek like you got your ass kicked for it and like now it's the most powerful thing in the world so like sorry you're not an underdog anymore mm-hmm. theater kids are still underdogs they still get relentlessly ridiculed and mocked i know we talked about it i think in last week's episode with like rachel zegler in west side story where everyone's like oh i can't stand her she's like so theatery and it's like Calm down. Like, mm-hmm. she's doing a very good job. She knows what she's doing. People just have this, like, visceral hatred towards theater kids because they don't fully understand them, so they project onto them. Um, and Glee definitely uh, is responsible for some of that. Thanks, I, Leah Michelle. I'm I'm sure. Um, I think also that most people in America probably have at least some secondhand exposure to theater kids just by going through school. And I don't know how it was for you because you were inside. Mm-hmm. Like you, you were a part of the system. Mm-hmm. I was on the outside of the system and had lots of friends who were in theater. And I can say that I found so many theater kids to be insufferable because they went all in on it. Oh, don't worry. I, so did I. Yeah. Like- <laughs> so like when, when you're fully committed to anything and you're obsessive about anything, it's a little overwhelming, especially when it's like, a large group of kids at school and they're the loudest and need the most attention of anyone in the school. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is my thing. The way that the football team are like, they wear their jerseys on game day. I will be loudly singing show tunes during lunch because Mm -hmm. like it's the same kind of thing. It's just a lot harder to ignore. Yeah. (laughs) Cause they, they don't want to be ignored. So I think everyone has like this very visceral, like, 
like they clench up because they're like, oh, this is embarrassing for me to be near you. <laughs> I think that's why a lot of people have this bad relationship with theater kids. I think so, too. And I think there's also a bunch of intersections that a lot of people don't want to unpack um, because theater has always been aligned with queerness because it's the arts. Because it's the arts, yes. So everybody's really into that. And people don't like flamboyancy. Like, it's that kind of mentality we hear all the time of like, well, I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own home. I just don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. Like, that energy is also applied to theater kids where it's just like, I don't care that you like to sing and dance, but I don't want to know about it. Mm -hmm. And like, to some extent, yeah, kids don't sing show tunes in the middle of lunch. Like, you're in a shared space chill out like uh, some of the kids in my high school would do that yeah so did mine but the kids who did that were the kids that like didn't actually get cast in leads yeah um so like myself and like my core group of friends who did get cast as leads we would just sit on the other side of the room like god they're, they're embarrassing that's because us. you did not have to assert how cool you were correct the, these are the our talent spoke for itself these these are the theater kid equivalent of the guys who have to preach about how big their dicks are or how high their iq is and it's like, if it's really that big, you don't need to brag about it because mm -hmm. you, you know. <laughs> you don't need that validation. Absolutely. Something that camp does do well, in my opinion, is that this is a movie that is kind of like, hey, kids, embrace your freak flag and let it fly. And we weren't really getting a lot of those movies at this time period. A lot of the teen movies that we're seeing in the 2000s, they deal with people that are like conforming, like trying to conform and trying to be the popular girl. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's because we're like post boy band and right. bubblegum pop coming back into vogue in the 90s. And like we're we're not yet at Mean Girls where we're then going to subvert those tropes and try to dismantle those those clicky systems. Mm -hmm. um, it's still kind of like a, a, a desire to be wanted and to be accepted. What's wrong with some drums? Sometimes it just feels good to be normal. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I, how dare Vlad say all that? Like he's not some kid who's like, what do you mean you've never heard of Neil Young? <laughs> While criticizing someone for listening to Joni Mitchell. Right. Right. So like, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And I know right off the bat. You don't like this movie. No. Um, I think the difference between this movie and other movies that I don't like is like, 
it's not satisfying for me to even want to talk about the movie. I want to talk about anything else other than the movie, mm-hmm. which is not a good sign for a podcast <laughs> who talks about movies. Right. So if you could explain to me, like, why is this one that you don't want to talk about the way that, like, personally, I think the worst film that we've ever covered is It's a Boy-Girl Thing. Like, hands down, no question. That's my least favorite thing we've ever done. I think it's the worst film we've ever done. Probably, but... Why? Why? What makes this one different? I don't know. I I feel like this one is messier, and I actively hate Vlad as a character mm-hmm. more than maybe any boy that I'm supposed to root for that we've ever covered. Okay. I think he is insufferable and a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like, the introduction we get to Vlad is him being, like, a sensitive white boy with an acoustic guitar, and it's got wicked, anyway, here's Wonderwall energy, mm-hmm. except he's doing the Rolling Stones, and, like, I'm not the biggest Rolling Stones fan, but doing Wild Horses without vocal harmonies feels like you just stripped away half the song, and it's bad. Mm-hmm. And he's doing, like, acoustic ballads at a theater camp. Dude, does you're not in your element. You shouldn't be here. This feels wrong. Yeah, unless you're auditioning for once, like, chill out. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong place, and it feels weird, and that, I guess, ties into him being, oh, the straight boy, mm-hmm. who really has to make everything about him, mm-hmm. and he has to be, like, the golden boy, as he's called, and has to fix everyone's problems, mm-hmm. but also, he desperately needs attention from everyone at all times to the point of being like, anyway, uh, I've got a girlfriend, but like you never asked if I had a girlfriend. So I'm just kind of a piece of shit, but I'm not really a piece of shit. You should have asked. Mm-hmm. And he's queer baiting Michael the whole time mm-hmm. and all the way up to like a really weird, unsatisfying ending where they go skinny dipping. Mm-hmm. And the moment in this movie that made me turn on it, like I, I was skeptical, I was confused, but the moment, the precise moment where I turn to you and go, BJ, why? <laughs> why did you do this to me? Is that there's this r- running B-plot, but back and forth between Michael and Vlad. And then Vlad goes, oh, you know what? You don't have to be gay. Have you ever tried being heterosexual? Uh, all you got to do is like put on some salsa music and you got the Latin thing going for you and the chicks will throw themselves at you, which is like <laughs> fucking awful. Yeah, don't. that's some like pickup artist bullshit. Uh, have you just like, tried negging them? Like, have you tried negging them? Have you tried like turning yourself into like a fetishistic object due to your ethnicity? Yeah, it's, it's fucking gross. But he ends up saying, hey, you should call your parents and invite them to the show and they would really love to see it, you. See you. They're still your parents after all. So Michael does. And then they don't come. And he has like a breakdown on stage and like just flees in the middle of a performance and is sitting in the auditorium by himself later. And there's supposed to be this heart to heart where Michael's talking to Vlad. And he's saying like, yeah, being gay is hard and it's difficult. And my parents don't love and accept me the way that I want them to, um, both as a gay person and as someone who like, does drag and I guess also probably theater because it's generally seen as like a gay thing for guys to do even if they're straight Mm -hmm. and then Vlad goes gee man how can I make this about me though Mm -hmm. anyway uh I have OCD Mm -hmm. and goes on about that for a while and Michael goes yeah I, I get that 
But you can take a pill to like turn your OCD off. I'm always gay. Yeah. And Vlad's response is, that's silly. Anyway, let's get out of here. And that's the end of the scene. I guess we're both freaks. (laughs) Well, you can take a pill for yours. I'm still some teenage drag queen with bad skin who can't put on a dress without getting the crap beat out of him. (laughs) Let's get out of here, man. And then we get like this weird like pseudo redemption where he throws like a drag party with like drag everybody's in drag um, to like show Michael like, hey, I see you. I validate you like I'm your friend, which like he's trying, but it doesn't quite hit. So something I it do- also happens immediately. Well, yeah, like, like that's why I said it's like an awkward transition. It, it really is like that's one of the moments where you should like leave that plot and then come back a little bit later. Yeah, but no, they jump right into it. No, it. it, it ugh. So something I want to bring up with that is there was an article on BuzzFeed for this movie's 15th anniversary a couple years ago. This movie is turning 20 next year, which is like wild. And Todd Graff, who wrote and directed the movie, talks about Vlad's character specifically. And as it turns out, Vlad falls under what we have called kind of like the ducky problem. Okay. Where the character, if he is straight, as he's presented in the movie, Mm -hmm. the things that he does and says are ridiculously problematic and they're awful and they're irredeemable and I hate the character. He's an asshole. Well, originally, like, Todd Graff had intended the character to be queer and, like, be closeted and be struggling with it um, based on his own experiences at the stage door camp that uh, Camp Ovation is based on that he attended when he was a kid where he was a closeted kid and he didn't know how to, like, navigate that. So what he did was he slept around with, like, every girl that he could Mm -hmm. because it was like, well, I don't want to be gay. I don't want to be gay or, like, I don't want to figure this out. So I'm going to you know, sleep with a bunch of girls and figure it out for myself, which is something that I absolutely relate to as somebody who struggled to navigate their sexuality during their teen years and slept with a bunch of people that I didn't actually like because of that. Um, That makes so much more of his motivations make sense. It makes complete sense why he would immediately want to like relate to Michael and be like, yeah, I get this. And then back away and be like, "Uh, because I have OCD instead of being like, yeah, because I'm also gay. Like these things all make sense. But the fact that producers were not going to let that happen, it makes him such like an asshole, like such an asshole character. I can't stand him. Like, personally, I cannot stand Vlad's character. It's not his fault. It's no one who worked on this movie's fault. That was the hand they were dealt. And Graf talks about it uh, in this interview, and I just, whew, I need you to brace yourself for this information. Cool. As Graf struggled to find producers, he realized that the specificity that made Camp perfect for his directorial debut would be a challenge, as with the film subject matter, which was more controversial than he had intended. Camp's queerness is as relentless as it is glorious. This is a movie which campers of all ages don drag to cheer up the morose friend, in which a gay boy seduces and has sex with his female friend just to prove that he can, and in which the objectification of the sole straight guy is presented as the unavoidable consequence of perfect abs. 
Back then, there was no way you were going to have two boys, one naked, manipulating the other who's a drag queen who gets queer bashed in the first scene, and then they're about to kiss, Graf said, referring to the film's final moments in which Vlad suggestively confesses his sexual confusion to Michael, whether out of genuine interest or just to get him worked up. It was not going to happen. At one point, Graf brought his script to Paramount, where he was asked if he could transform the outcasts of Camp Ovation from queer kids to Trekkies. Oh, of course. They said, well, you know kids at that age who are very into Star Trek often have a very tough time. They get picked on. They get bullied, Graf recalled. And I said, do you really equate being a Star Trek fan with being a 15-year-old queer-bashed drag queen? And he refused to give in. Of course, that meant he had to search even harder for the support necessary to make his film. It was clear pretty early on it was not going to get made by a major studio. And so, he, and so he sold his house and moved to New York. And he did nothing but try to make the movie for four years the way that it was written. That, to me, is bananas. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is why this movie is worth talking about. Because explaining that alone to I think some of our our younger listeners, I think might break their brain a little bit. Where it's Mm -hmm. like, we need you to understand that when we were teenagers, studio executives literally equated being bullied for liking Star Trek as the same as being gay bashed. That is a one-way ticket to Banana Town. Like, that is out of control. (laughs) Well... The problem with the early 2000s, and I mean, uh, we'll just say the whole 2000s. The aughts in general. Yeah. um, Is that being gay was seen and honestly touted as as a mental illness in some cases because it's like, oh, well, you're born that way. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as as you having OCD or dyslexia or mm-hmm. being left-handed or whatever the thing you want to say is. Like even coming out as trans in 2009 – that was still a diagnosable mental disorder. Like, it was in the EDM until, I think, 2013. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really evident that some people have never been out in a world where you were treated as having a mental illness mm-hmm. for being trans. Like, it, it shows, and it truly is, like, a stark night and day difference, I yes. feel like. Because, like, the, psycholo- the psychiatrist that I saw, the medical professionals I saw... They gamed the system by treating transness as a mental disorder because then it was unignorable. Mm-hmm. Because you're then you're treating a disease rather than providing what is seen as like, oh, it's a, it's elective care. Mm-hmm. So it's really different from 2009, let alone 2003. Mm-hmm. No, it, it absolutely is. And... I think that's why this movie is in such a weird place because seeing a character like Michael was like groundbreaking for me and to also see him be so normal. So like Robin DeJesus, um, who has then gone on, like he, he's a two time Tony winner. He's in tick, tick, boom. He was on, he was in, in the Heights on Broadway. Like he's amazing. Like he's an incredible performer And in this movie, he's wonderful, but he's also like a gay kid with bad skin. Mm -hmm. And it was hard enough to see gay representation in general around this time period, let alone a teenager and let alone a teenager that wasn't like a model. Mm -hmm. Because we have to remember this is also like the time of like metrosexuals. And like there was this idea that if you were gay, you had to be a certain way. And Mm -hmm. what that meant was cisgender, white, and incredibly well like 
manicured. We all love Will and Grace, don't we? Yes. Like, that's that's exactly what people were chasing for. For the record, I don't like Will and Grace, actually. I have mixed feelings about it. But I was saying yes to agree with you. I know. I just wanted to be – I wanted to be clear to the <laughs> listeners. But then you have Michael, who is just – an average kid who happens to be gay. Mm-hmm. And that's unheard of at this time. Like, that's that's incredible. I think that this was the first time I had ever seen drag kings outside of, like, I don't know, like, older films that were specifically about drag and drag characters. Mm-hmm. Like, j- just that being a thing that could happen, I was like, wow, oh, okay, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And, I like, these are, these are moments that stick with me. And... It's it's hard because camp in 2003 is exactly what so many of us needed and I think was absolutely vital to our existences because it, it gave you that sense of hope that like there are people who will understand you and there are people who are going to accept you as you are and you're going to find those people. It's just probably not going to be in your shitty town. Like, no, like just think, just think about how – they all have to come from somewhere. Yeah. This is like, essentially we've buried these kids far off the beaten path and in the woods where theater kids belong, <laughs> out of sight and out of mind. <laughs> like, that's where this camp exists and that's where this queerness exists. These teens aren't together the other 11 months out of the year. Yeah. That's not a thing. Somewhere, like, I don't know how it was for you, like, there's like, A million high schools in this country where there's, like, one out gay kid, two out gay kids, three. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure there's way more now Mm -hmm. uh, as as much as politicians are trying to put a stop to that. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, that was your community. Like, there was no online community. We we were pre-social media. Yeah, none of these kids can really keep up with each other. At this point, because, like, AIM is barely a thing at this point. This is pre-Facebook, pre-MySpace, pre-everything. You get a pen pal at best. Right. So this is really one of the only circumstances where you can have people like this exist and have a queer space. But it's it's a fantasy. It's it's not real. Like, that's what Bert, what's-his-face, the drunken teacher who is a one-hit wonder of musical theater, Mm -hmm. goes on about in, like, a really impassioned and pretty dang correct rant Mm -hmm. is that this isn't reality and it's they're treating it kind of like boot camp and it's ridiculous so he ends up just stripping it down to three hour practices a day by the end Mm -hmm. well so i'm glad that you brought up bert because i think that that speech that he gives so you know he's he's clearly somebody that has fallen under the trap of like those who can do and those who can't teach Mm -hmm. um that's sort of where he's ended up and he's clearly bitter about it because Mm -hmm. he's developed an alcohol problem um just to try to cope with it but when he does kind of lash out onto these kids i don't think that his approach is the correct way to do it the Um, words but are bad the sentiment is correct yes because there is also something that happens with theater kids and i can say this as a former theater kid um i'm just a theater adult now yeah it it doesn't go (laughs) on on an off season (laughs) you can when we're adults you can tell you like you did theater didn't you or like the best is when somebody clocks me as having done speech team and i'm just like oh like it's one of those things where it's like if you know you know and then you can point each other out you can find each other (laughs) our mannerisms are the same um but anyway 
there is this weird fantasy thing that happens where you kind of get in your head a lot of these lofty ideals, because especially for kids of this age mm-hmm. in the 2000s, where the, the, the housing bubble and like the, the stock market and the job market and the economy hasn't burst yet. Mm-hmm. 2008 hasn't happened yet. We're full of hope and then everybody, we're going to lose hope and then we're going to need is, Obama. It's full of hope of if you just try hard and go to a good school, you can do whatever you want. You can meet all of your dreams. Like that this reality re- smack hasn't happened yeah, yet. Yeah, this really is like the last hurrah of the American dream. 100%. So these kids are going to this camp and they're all working their asses off and like trying to do things because they have these big dreams. And the problem is that the only people who are kind of like keeping them somewhat grounded in reality are doing it in like the absolute worst possible ways. Oh, these teachers are mean. The teachers are mean and their parents are mean. Uh Like when we listen to Ellen talk about how she wants to be an actor and her parents have basically told her to her face, you're not pretty enough to be an actress. It doesn't matter how good you are. Uh Like that's awful. Like that's absolutely awful. First off, character acting is a thing. Second of all, like you you shouldn't say that to your kid. Like you should be encouraging them to follow their dreams and pursue those dreams. If you're very worried that they're going to like be heartbroken, there are ways to have those conversations without being dream crushingly awful. Mm -hmm. And that's what we get with Bert where he's like, you all have this like imagined idea of like this perfect utopia. And like that, that's not a thing. Like reality is real. And I, again, I hate the way he goes about it, but he's absolutely right. And the way that I can see that existing in like today's world is our quarantine queers, mm-hmm. as we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they've that whole like group has been coming up a lot on the show, but I think it's worth talking about because there is going to be a huge cultural shock and shift, and we're already seeing it happen where when you have your little online communities that you've curated with the people that are like-minded and they love you and they respect you and they affirm you the same way that you would a kid in a theater camp. Oh yeah, sooner or later, summer ends. And then you end up in the real world that was not catered to you, that is actively hostile to a lot of you. Mm -hmm. And you have to prepare yourself to exist in that world. I don't want the world to be like this. The world should not be like this. But you do have to prepare for that reality. Mm-hmm. Like living in a fantasy world of the stage will bite you in the ass real hard. And I can say that as somebody who got bit in the ass real hard. Mm-hmm. And it sucked. It sucked so bad. Mm-hmm. But it's it's part of growing up. It's part of that growth. And the, I think the problem is that when you have kids that are in theater, and this is going to go off on a weird tangent, so forgive me for this. People don't realize how many careers you can have outside of being a star on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And when you say, like, oh, I want to be an actor, everyone always goes to, like, oh, well, then call me when you win your first Oscar. Nobody says that when someone's like, I'm going to go to medical school. They're not like, cool, call me when you're the surgeon general. Like, Call me when you've cured cancer. Right. Nobody does that shit. They're just like, wow, you're doing a great thing. But for whatever reason, people get it in their head that, like, if you want to pursue theater or anything in the arts, that, like, unless you become a celebrity, then you have somehow failed. Yeah. And that's not true. So what happens is people then, like, beat these kids down and say horrible things to them 
because they're trying to, in their minds, prepare them for reality, when really all you have to do is say, hey, you're super talented. As a reminder, it is the equivalent of trying to play for the NFL, if not harder, because there are less members on a team. So, like, shoot for the moon, kid, but do not forget there are so many other worthwhile things you can be doing within this field outside of Broadway. Like, it does not have to be the end-all, be-all. Yeah. Like, that's all you have to say. Yeah. And Bird instead is like, <laughs> you're all living in a fantasy world and you're going to get the shit kicked out of you. And it's like... Yeah, that might be true, but you don't need to approach it like that, buddy. They are children. No, no, maybe you don't need to be Phantom on Broadway. Maybe you just want to be in like a local production of Cats and you get to be Mr. Mistopheles. Right. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you There's... have fun with it, go for it. Yes. Like if you, if, if this is what you care about and this is what you dream about and this is what you want to do, there's so many ways to do it outside of Broadway. But like when it comes to anything in the performing arts, like people just don't understand the world Mm -hmm. so they look at it in like tunnel vision and camp is one of those movies that actually kind of acknowledges that which i think is really really important because we really didn't have those conversations until much much later if i can teach you one thing which is supposed to be my job here it'd be that you should all go home michael bennett's dead Bob Fosse is dead. Times Square is a theme park now. I hate to be the Grinch, but it's not normal what goes on up here. Somebody has got to warn you. Teenage fag hags become adult fag hags. Straight boys are straight. You can't turn them just because you need to be loved. The foundation that's being laid here is not going to help you in the real world. It's going to lead to waitressing jobs and bitterness and the obsessive, pointless collecting of out-of-print original cast albums. We get a little bit of this on some of the other episodes we've done. Um, Obviously, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, a little bit with, like, Ice Princess and Kim Cattrall being, like, ball buster. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a little bit of it in, in like, Stick It. Like, the, the competitive for, like, feminine competitive sports, basically. Mm-hmm. We get that. But I'd say the largest scale and most easily recognizable version of this kind of parent is, like, dance moms, mm-hmm. to- toddlers and tiaras. Mm-hmm. Like, pageant moms who are brutal and mean. No, totally. And as somebody who, you know, was also a baton twirler, I've been in that world as well. And I think that the difference being is that we are so accustomed to seeing these types of parents in the world of sports. Like, there are so many instances of, like, dad who gets red carded at a Little League game. And it's like, all right, Paul, calm down. Like, it's a kid's game. It's Let him play. It's the dad. Right. Like, <laughs> sit the fuck down. It's not a bit it, chill. And, like, that passion comes from, like, oh, well, you're not fast enough. You're not throwing hard enough. Like, you need to cut your time down. The ref screwed my kid. The ref screwed my kid. What are you, blind? Fuck you. Yeah, there's, like, all of these different things. But all of those criticisms or the things that they're stressing on their kids are not about, like, who they are intrinsically as a human being. Whereas if you are pursuing theater, hardcore theater parents can be some of the cruelest people you've ever met Mm -hmm. because they're not just critiquing their 
child's like performance, they're critiquing their child because you are your instrument. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like, oh, hey, you missed like playing that flute movement on there. You need to remember to practice that next time. Mm -hmm. It's like, you look ugly. And you're like, what the hell? What like, if we did that awful. with sports stars where it's like, uh, you're a little too much like Mark McGuire and not enough like A-Rod. Right. Like, that you would need be, to be prettier. Like that would be so cruel. And yet we do that in theater all the time. It's not like, oh, hey, you missed that movement. It's like, hey, you're too ugly to be famous. I want to have a beauty pageant specifically for professional golfers. <laughs> and I want to harshly criticize old white men. <laughs> <laughs> and like we see that. So we have like Fritzy who... Anna Kendrick is a star. Oh, okay. Baby Anna Kendrick is in an entire, she's in another league. I'm it, so sorry. It's unbelievable. Okay, so you showed me some clips of Robin DeJesus from Tick, Tick, Boom, which I have not seen yet, but it looks great. Yeah, it's, um, it's fantastic. It's, I listened to it and go, yep, that was clearly written by the guy who did Rent. Yep. <laughs> but it's not insufferable like Rent. And this is also a better, ver this is a better music for the movie than the Rent from the movie, which yes, is not yes. good versions of those songs. Anyway... I don't think he's quite there yet. He's he's one of the best actors in this movie by far. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's just he's a natural. Yeah, let's let's be honest. Most of these kids are not the best. These but are theater kids that have been put in front of a camera, and like so many people think that they are a one to one. It's not. That's like somebody who's really good at badminton being told now they have to play tennis. Like, yeah, the basics are the same, but the execution is entirely different. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening here. They're trying, but like theater kids are meant to be huge. And when you put that in front of a camera, that hugeness looks hokey and fake. I, I think it's also weird because the I, I it feels like all these kids were cast because they're theater kids who can sing and not their theater kids who can act. Yes, which is the inverse of how we usually see movie musicals where they get actors who can't sing. Correct. So I feel like you have this, again, it's this movie fighting itself where, correct me if I'm wrong, and this maybe I'm just reading this wrong, but it feels like kids who can sing and probably can act in a different medium, but they're being put on screen instead of on stage, which is already out of their element, mm -hmm. Which, but they also have to be sort of incompetent theater kids because they're there to learn, not like they've already figured it out. Mm -hmm. So they have to be kind of bad theater kids in a medium that is not what they're used to being good in. Yes. Like there's there's a lot of moving parts and I think you described it correctly when you say that it's a movie that's kind of fighting against itself. Oh, and constantly. I think that's absolutely what's happening. Anna Kendrick is the exception. Exactly. So she is such a star because even just seeing her transition from like this sort of awkward, quiet, submissive girl to the rich, popular blonde, which the blonde's room, I think her name's Jill. Yeah. She's, she's like got... a circular mattress at summer camp. Right. Like, geez, <laughs> well, the, the boudoir glamour of this 15 year old. <laughs> Anyway, Jill gets fed up with Anna Kendrick because she's annoying and she's touching her underwear and stuff like that. And Anna Kendrick decides to get revenge and poisons this girl with bleach so that she's puking on stage, as referenced by the opening of this episode. And it's her moment as understudy to, like, rise and steal her light. And she's unbelievably good. 
The second yeah. she hits that stage as that character, you look at her and go, oh, this girl is leagues above anyone else in this movie. She is above this caliber and just should be in her own film. Yeah. It's, she's such a star. Anna Kendrick is is pretty unbelievable. And according to this like oral history on BuzzFeed, it says one of the first kids cast was Anna Kendrick, along with Sasha Allen. She's the one who plays D. Oh, she's she, such a good singer. She's fantastic. And that scene uh, almost didn't happen, that opening number, oh, yeah. um, because it started raining really bad. And they ended up doing a full 20 24 hour shoot which is like illegal you can't do that anymore especially mm-hmm. with children um because everybody it, on the the cast and crew was like yeah we can't imagine not having that number like she has to sing this mm-hmm. um again so. she's such a good singer and is probably the best one in the movie yeah and that opening scene sets such a high bar that the rest of the movie <laughs> really can't reach. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. She ended up uh, on one of the seasons of The Voice. She didn't win, but she did pretty well. Oh, she's fantastic. Good for her. But um, along with Sasha Allen, she was the only actor to make the transition from Graf's workshop productions of camp to the final film. At the time, Kendrick had never made a movie, but she had already made her mark on Broadway in the show High Society, which starred Graf's cousin Randy. To me, Anna was Anna Banana, Randy's little friend from her show for years, he said. When we shot camp, she was 16, so I'd known her for several years before we ever made the movie, and I always knew this kid was amazing. She was a very precocious kid, but she was cool. She was not obnoxious. She was a kid that you liked hanging out with. And Kendrick's Fritzy, uh, as the the writer of this article describes, is an ambitious and possibly homicidal young camper and Mm -hmm. was a scene stealer. But camp largely comes down to the relationships between Michael, Vlad, and Ellen. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is so much less interesting than Anna Kendrick's character. Anna Kendrick is so Uh, awesome in this. And, like, her whole character is basically just a parody of All About Eve, which I think is really funny for a teenager. Um, And... There's so much like weird in theater parallels being drawn here about like this is a movie about kids who clearly are acting a little bit too mature for their age despite the fact that they don't actually know what they're doing but they think that they do and they're pretending like they do mm-hmm. and that is then reflected by the fact that this entire summer camp is doing like pretty much all Sondheim songs and Sondheim does not write like Susicle the Musical or Rent Junior like mm-hmm. He is writes, there a Rent Jr.? Yes, there is. Ew! It's not good. <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. It's not good. Uh. Um, but no, Sondheim musicals are, for the most part, like, very adult. Like, they're dealing with complex adult issues. They're dealing with, like, a lot of the midlife and quarterlife crises or the coming of age of being 30. Mm-hmm. And, like... <laughs> Like the fact that they're singing stuff from company and these are children like Anna Kendrick singing ladies who lunch is so wonderful. And it, it is camp. It is high camp because she is acting the way that she thinks that like a worn down, like 30 something would be acting. Mm -hmm. And that's really funny to me because she clearly has never experienced that at all. You even have a different teacher criticize them for not understanding the words that they're saying. Mm-hmm. They're just they're saying them, but they don't they don't feel them. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of really mean because it's basically him saying like, "Think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I bet it's nothing. I bet you've led a perfect little life. Fuck you." Which like okay, first off, uh, plenty of teenagers in this world, myself included would have been through some shit at this point. So like he's he's making some pretty harsh critiques. Don't judge these kids life, you don't know them. 
But second of all, uh, no, that is actually very much a, a big problem that happens a lot. Um, there is a singing competition that happens in Cleveland every year. It's a big scholarship competition for theater kids. And I have a lot of friends who are on the judging panel and we will talk about choosing a song that is good for you, choosing something not only because it's good in your register, but also because it is good for you. For example, if you are a white girl, I do not care how beautiful you think singing Breathe from In the Heights is. You're white. Stop singing that song. White girls shouldn't sing Dream Girls. Correct. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> like, just, just, just don't do that. And, like, similarly, like, a, a big one that's been happening recently is there's a song called... Uh, she used to be mine from Waitress. It is a breathtaking, beautiful ballad. It's written by Sarah Bareilles. Yeah, yeah, so like didn't Sarah Bareilles yes. do the music? To it's Waitress? fantastic. <laughs> but like that song is tackling really heavy themes that like teenagers, for the most part, don't know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And to hear them like act their way through it and cry their way through it, it's like it just it's always so surface level. And I'm like. Please, unless like you actually know what this sort of feeling is, like don't go for this. But that's neither here nor there. No. But Camp does kind of acknowledge that in like a very weird backwards way, because we have Sean, uh, played by Stephen Cutts, uh, approach one of the the counselors and is like, "Hey, uh, I come to this camp every year. Me and my brother do, and um, they they're wearing what clearly looks like they're doing Fiddler on the Roof. They are doing Fiddler, and um, they're uh like." First off, like, black Jewish people do exist. We're not trying to, like, erase that. But they are clearly not Jewish. And they are drawing this as a parallel to be like, hey, we come to this camp to learn and we don't actually learn anything because you keep just casting us as white people, mm -hmm. which is a very uh, not okay thing. And they're like, well, it's colorblind casting. And here's, here's the, the I'm going to get a little soapbox here when it comes to colorblind casting. All right. In some instances, colorblind casting absolutely should happen. Something like Seussical the Musical. Who fucking cares what the race the cat in the hat is? No one cares. It's fine. But you have to take into consideration the optics when you are doing colorblind casting. Yeah. How, how much of this is intrinsic to this character's life? Absolutely. That's, that's a huge part of it. Like, do not cast white people in Dreamgirls, as we see as a huge mistake in this show. It's going to be a really interesting world we live in when they start being high schools in, like, Minnesota doing all-white productions of Hamilton. I hope, honestly, that Lin-Manuel Miranda never lets the rights up for that. I genuinely hope he doesn't, because that's what will happen. Yeah. And it will not be okay. No. Um, we, we see these things happen in high schools all the time. They're like, we're going to do West Side Story. And it's like, why? Why? So another white girl can play Maria? No. What is she going to learn from this? She's never going to play that role outside of a, of a high school or a college. You're not actually teaching them how to perform because you're forcing them into boxes that don't exist. That doesn't work. And also, you can completely change the messaging of something if you do not take consideration into somebody's race. For example, I have been in a multitude of productions of like Jesus-y musicals, things like Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. Your favorite. I love Jesus Christ Superstar so fucking much. <laughs> but you do have to take into consideration, like, what does it appear like if you have one person of color in the entire show and they play Judas? Like, what does what message are you sending to your audience? And don't get me wrong, Carl Anderson, fucking awesome in Jesus what, Christ Superstar the movie. What an opening number. He, oh my God, he's so fantastic. But he's not the only person of color in this movie. Had he been the only one, uh, that would have been a bigger issue. And there are still people who really do not like that movie because they're like, you're implying that like black people are bad. 
and yeah, that's what can happen. Like if you cast the the only person of color in your show as the villain, I don't care how colorblind casting you're it you you think you're being, that's not helpful to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are things that have to be taken into consideration. So they did. Dream Girls for this, and they have an eight-year-old playing like a full-ass adult. And this is also prior to the Dream Girls movie. Yes, so, but he's playing the Eddie Murphy character in that movie. Yes, and then you have a white girl singing, and I am telling you, and like she's trying to do a Jennifer Holiday, which, which uh, like with all due respect to Jennifer Hudson, her vocal performance on that song is beautiful. It's not angry enough. No. It's beautiful. It's impressive. It's not angry enough. Yeah. Jennifer Holiday sings like she's trying to make your skin fall off. Like, Correct. She's unbelievable. And this little white girl. Is it? Is it Ellen? I think it's Ellen. Oh, she's just. Like, her voice is beautiful. She's pretty sounding. But like, girl, don't sing this. No. And then you have Dee in the background looking rightfully pissed, which, as she should be. Which, I don't know if that's intentional, because I'm pretty sure that's, that character is just kind of angry for that whole play. Yeah. But also, again, optics. Again, the optics are like, fuck you. You shouldn't have this song. I should have it. I'm a better singer than you, and I'm not white. Right, which, yeah, she should. She should be singing this. It should not be Ellen. Like, what the hell? Um, so, like, there's stuff like that being addressed, but I feel like in the context of 2003, like, it's just like, haha, look how funny and, like, kind of insensitive they're being. Look at this juxtaposition. Right. But then at the same time, it's like, this would be way funnier if, like, this wasn't so common. So, like, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that scene for for that reason. Like, it's important to call it out, but at the same time, like, I don't think it's critical enough Mm -hmm. for my liking. But in 2003, I remember being like, wow, I can't believe they're actually addressing that theaters do this. Well, that's the thing, though, is is it critical of it or is it, like, commentary on it if it doesn't paint it in that way? Right. Like, you're going to glean what you're going to glean from this scene if you just think, oh, she's doing a lovely performance, and Dee is just in character back there, and that's where it ends. Mm-hmm. Have you learned anything? Right. And I feel like this is where the, like, deep inner community of theater world makes this movie a little bit harder for outside audiences, because I look at it, and I'm like, oh, they are, this is definitely commentary. Like, they're pointing out that this is fucked up and this mm-hmm. happens all the time and should not be happening. And that's really smart. But if you are somebody who does not know Dreamgirls, then it doesn't read. It just looks like putting a child in a position that he shouldn't be in and it doesn't address the race of it all. No, I feel like there's a lot of things that probably went over my head as a person who's you know fairly casual when it comes to musical theater, particularly a lot of classic musical theater. I feel like a lot of that doesn't land with me. And there's probably just a lot of like silly little jokes that just occur with like, oh, look at them. They shouldn't be doing this play or like that's a bad take on this character or mm-hmm. any number of things that work if you have extra knowledge in it. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, Stephen Sondheim, R.I.P., uh, all I knew is you were in this movie and I had never seen what Stephen Sondheim looked like before. And some guy pops on the screen and he looked kind of like just older. And I'm like, oh, BJ, is that older guy Stephen Sondheim? And you go, no, that's just some guy. You'll know when it's him. And I just want to apologize for thinking that Stephen Sondheim would ever have a soul patch because there are <laughs> several grown men with soul patches in this movie. And he looks 
very dapper when he rolls out of his limo in this movie. And yes, he's an angel. I feel bad for assuming that guy was him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty funny. I was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is making sense as to why you don't get that. And here's where I I become kind of I, I part the Red Sea of my brain into schools of thought of how I feel about this movie. Sure. Because on one hand, I'm like, so much of this movie gets missed if you are not like in the shit when it comes to theater. Mm -hmm. And then therefore like this then stops becoming accessible and the, the impact isn't as strong. But then at the same time, like fuck movies that have to have universal appeal. Like I love movies that are very niche and very specific to people's experiences. And like the, the joy is finding the universal message that exists within those experiences. We talked about that on our turning red episode where Hoi Chan is talking about how so much of this movie is very specific to the experience of somebody who is a second generation immigrant, but at the exact same time, like there are themes throughout this that are universal. I don't know how many universal themes exist in camp outside of like, the assessment of queerness because you can use theater as somewhat of like a vehicle or an echo for queerness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something worth exploring. I do like that this movie is super normal about teenagers having sex. Like it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's not a big deal. Like Mm -hmm. they're bed hopping, they're sleeping with each other and it's just very matter of fact of like, yeah, I did this and it's not, the biggest scandal of the camp. It's not about losing your virginity. It's just a thing you do. And that I think is really interesting and kind of cool to see. And then at the same time, we then get juxtaposition with people like Ellen, where you brought up how Vlad never mentioned that he had a girlfriend. And she's like, and you never asked me if I had a boyfriend because you just assumed someone like me would not have a boyfriend. And it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, these are conversations we're having. I like this. I like these exchanges. Yeah. And then that's also, but that happens like 60 seconds after Ellen just blurts out that bisexuality isn't real. Which like, again, we were. This is a throwaway line. We were watching it and it was this moment we were having. We were like, okay, so is this supposed to be like a joke? Because obviously bisexuality is real. Mm -hmm. Big neon sign. Bisexuality is real. Is Ellen mad at Michael and is making it just just going for the jugular? Right. Or is or, this like director commentary? This is how Todd Graff feels. Like, I have no idea. I, All I, I know is like hearing that it's line. wrong either way. Yeah. Hearing that line now is like whiplash where you're just like, whoa. Oh, yeah. And they don't even address it. It just kind no. of is thrown in there. And then we continue the conversation without. <laughs> it's just so fucking weird. Yeah. It's it's very, very strange. Ugh. Making the changes to Vlad's character to make him straight and not like canonically queer was Graf's attempt at trying to make it a little bit more, to give it a little bit more of broad appeal, um, but it didn't really help. Um, it just muddies everything. Yeah. So according to this BuzzFeed article, it says, reviews are mixed. Rolling Stone's Peter Travers called Camp the modestly perfect antidote to a synthetic overblown movie, Summer. A blast of exuberant fun that stays rooted in humanity. Well, Michael Wilmington at the Chicago Tribune said it was shallow, forced, and phony in some of the same ways that fame was for the phony picture of New York High School for the Performing Arts, and this film doesn't have the compensating gloss energy or excitement of fame. But then there were some really out-and-out raves, like from Rolling Stone or Tiber at the Boston Globe, like serious real critics who gave it true money-quote kind of reviews, Graf said. And then there were critics that absolutely hated it. They just didn't know what to make of this thing. They just didn't get it. 
But the response from the theater community was nearly uniformly positive, which is what Graf had hoped for all along. He always knew that the audience would be somewhat limited, so he was more fixated on authenticity. Camp needed to work for the people that it was about. And if its cult status among young people is any indication, it did achieve what the filmmaker set out to do. All of the actors described enthusiastic encounters with fans, a phenomenon that has only increased over the years. It's absolutely incredible, Chilcote said, that's the actress who plays Ellen, of getting recognized for the film. I can't believe it's been 12 years and people are still talking about it, this tiny little movie. Graf remembered getting letters from those who were touched and inspired by the film. The outcast that he had made a point of showcasing found comfort in its honest depiction of diverse sexuality and gender expression. It was a formative film for a bunch of people, and I'm very proud that it found its way to those people. But for a bunch of kids who really felt like I'm just some kid somewhere, and I had no idea that a place like this exists, or that other kids like this existed like me, that were cross-dressing, or liked other boys, or were into musical theater, all of those kinds of things, there was not a lot of that out there for them. That's nice, but I am left scratching my head a little bit. That this has a cult following? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I feel like I've just never heard it brought up ever. Not even in like the echelons of queer cinema. Do you think that it's like continuing to accumulate a cult following? Or do you think it developed one? And it's kind of like, I don't know, the, the music of Kiss where it's like mostly a lot of people who've been there since day one mm-hmm. and are parts of the Kiss army. But Kiss isn't getting a lot of like 14-year-old fans at this day and age. It's mostly people who have been there in the long haul that's how i feel about it that's kind of what i'm thinking i think camp captured the hearts of a lot of misunderstood teenagers specifically theater kids in 2003 when we didn't have anything like we did not have movies that painted us as people worthy of love or worthy of affection or that our dreams and aspirations were worth a shit like we were laughing stocks, we were punching bags, and even today it's still very cool to hate on the theater kids. I think this movie was so important for so many people, and it's one of those things where like we're really, really protective of those things that we love, and it's hard to be critical of them, um, mm-hmm. especially as like we move forward. Because the thing is, I think if we showed like Gen Z camp today. Oh, they'd hate it. They would hate it. They would rip this apart. I think this is just a rough movie for anyone to watch for the first time in this day and age. Absolutely. That's where I'm sitting. Because the world has changed so much. But in 2003, this was groundbreaking representation for for theater kids, but more importantly for queerness. And I think that it's one of those things where it's like this was impactful and like you can't go back in time and change the movies that were impactful to you. Like they may not have aged well, but like this was very, very important to you. This was pivotal. This gave kids hope. And you can't take that from somebody. You just have to learn, hey, this was really, really important for me in 2003. It hasn't aged the best. Like Mm -hmm. there are some aspects of it that are very questionable and be able to hold those truths at the same time. And I also think that it's very, very important for people who are coming to it from the first time to watch this and remember, God, aren't we glad that we have it better now? 
Aren't mm-hmm. we glad that this is not the only thing that we have? We don't have to claim movies like Camp or Boat Trip anymore. Oh, Boat Trip. <laughs> it's just going to forever be our punching bag. It's uh, the easiest thing to point to as far as like bad queer representation in the aughts. And it's so funny because anyone who wants to see Boat Trip, because <laughs> like I swear it's either Roger Moore or Cuba Gooding Jr.'s people who are paying to keep it off streaming services, yeah. like keep that movie buried. You have to physically buy the fucking yeah. movie. Yeah. That's what I did. I revisited it. It's not good. No. It's the worst thing Lynn Shea's ever been in, unfortunately. Yeah. And she's actually not terrible in it. Yeah. She's trying. Yeah. It's just a bad script. Fucking boat trip. It's just bad. It's so homophobic. Uh, But you have something like Camp where, like, for its time period, this, this was great. Like, this is, this, this was pushing boundaries that had never been pushed before. And now it's passe. Now it is problematic and with how quickly things move now culturally and the conversations that we're able to have on like a global scale thanks to things like social media I, like I, th- I just I really need people to understand that like yeah a movie like camp is not great but for a brief period of time like this was the this was the peak this is, was the queer teen movie for, for for kids in the aughts where it wasn't about conversion therapy camp, like something like, but I'm a cheerleader, that it wasn't super mature and edgy like something like John Waters had made. It was a queer outcast teen movie specifically made with teen audiences in mind. And that was unheard of. And now today it's like, I can go watch Heartstopper on Netflix. I can go watch Crush on Hulu. I can go watch any number of things that are uh, any of the Love Simons, the Love Victors, like all of that shit. It's right there at the disposal for kids today. We did not fucking have that. We had camp. We had Vlad bed hopping and stealing attention and being a straight boy invading queer spaces and centering himself in it. That's what we had. And like, I can't help but feel like this weird sense of like defensiveness for it. Because this movie meant something to me then. But I'm also an adult, and I can look back at it and go, whoo, glad that we're not there anymore. I slept with her because of you. Me? I figured you might feel less threatened if you thought I was capable of sex with a woman. I don't even know how to respond to that, dude. With a stray jacket, perhaps? Michael. Things went so good with Dee. Isn't it just possible that you're... No. The only thing that's possible now is that I'll get beat up once too often and decide to be with some woman because I know I can. Water's freezing. Why are you doing this? Doing what? Skinny dipping. Okay. Maybe I do flirt. But if I do, it's only because I want to be liked. And... Maybe I'm a little confused. You're not confused. You like girls. (laughs) Okay. You're right. I do. I was just trying to give you what you want. I'm an asshole. And I don't know. I just love attention. I'm an attention junkie, I guess. Why do I do shit like that?
Michael, do you forgive me? I feel like if you were to make camp now, you just end up with the prom. Yes. And we tore the prom apart. Absolutely. But here's here's the question I have for you though. If the take the prom. Sure. Keep, keep the cast, even though James Corden wouldn't have theoretically been popular by now. But like keep the cast. So you've got Meryl, you've got you've got Nicole Kidman, you've got somebody like Ariana DeBose. Like you've got this huge cast. Yeah, throw that movie been through a time portal back to 2003. It, yep. We 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 just had Chicago uh-huh. and Moulin Rouge get uh-huh. nominated for a bunch of Academy uh-huh. Awards. The prom is getting nominated for like Best Picture. Absolutely. It's gonna win every GLAD award. It's gonna win all these other like we talked about this on our Sadie Hawkins episode. Like Big Gay Al's Big Gay Boat Ride of the first season of South Park was nominated for a GLAAD award. Mm -hmm. That's how fucking low the bar was in the late 90s and early 2000s, where South Park, which, listen to that episode if you're you're on our City Hawkins tier. I'm a weird defender of South Park. But, like, when South Park is setting the stage for, like, queer progress, holy shit, what is happening? Uh (laughs) And that's what we have with camp. Like, we in 2022 can look at this movie and be like, yeah, there's a lot of shit about this that doesn't work. And there's a lot of shit about this that is aged not well. And there's a lot of questionable stuff that's being just kind of, like, thrown out there and not addressed. But in terms of, like, 2003, like, this was it. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's it's worth acknowledging that. And that's, uh, that is that is my final piece on camp. Cool. So are you ready to ask a question then? I am. We're moving into the final number. We're moving into the final number. We we are coming up for bows. This is where we have our big closing thing that's just a reprise of a bunch of melodies from previously in the musical. Yes. Okay. Harmony? Uh-huh. Camp is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you giving them a ticket so that they can go on their own? I think if you were to ask most people who are familiar with teen media... One of the benchmarks, at least for its time, if not of all time, in terms of teen cinema, is The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. A film that is somewhat poorly aged, full of uh, morally complicated teens just having slices of life and just existing, and it's normal, and they're doing some maybe dubious fucking that they shouldn't be, and it's great. And one day we'll do an episode on that. Mm-hmm. Camp is the bad version of that. <laughs> I don't like this movie. I actually quite, quite hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a better movie in here that could have been made in a different time and it would not have nearly the same issues. Um, it's still got it's still a little cheap looking, but that doesn't bother me. It's still got some pretty hokey acting. That doesn't really bother me. But just all of these things together, like, it tested my limits. Uh-huh. And I'm also not a teenager. So it's death by a I'm thousand paper cuts for you. Kind of. Like, I'm not a queer teen in 2003. Mm-hmm. I'm not a theater kid, period. Mm-hmm. This isn't meant for me. And also with how it's held up to time and, like, retrospective scrutiny... I don't think it's for any new viewers at this point, and I don't think it has been for a long time. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Like, this is a movie that I hold precious purely from 
my own perspective. Like, that's why at the top of the show we say, like, is this movie any good or is it nostalgia glasses? Mm -hmm. And, like, I have nostalgia glasses for this movie. Fully. I admit that. I understand that. But I I actually agree with you. Like, if the, if the, the shoe was on the other foot and I was the one having to choose, I also would say no. Because I do think that this type of movie has been done better since. And I don't think that, again, I don't think this is a movie that's bringing in any new viewers at no. all. This movie exists purely for historical value at this point, mm-hmm. not for entertainment. Very much so. And if I'm going to be real, I don't think that the kids from camp are going to come to prom with us anyway because they have rehearsal. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's a big of a loss. I think that they are going to be much happier pursuing their own dreams than doing something as traditional as go to a prom. Sure. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> well, friends, that takes us out on camp. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends Up Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor underscore trap underscore tour. I'm so glad that we went through almost this whole episode without really talking about the movie and got to talk about hey, you so know many other things. I knew how you were feeling and it's it's Mother's Day. Mommy's here to take care of you. Oh. I got you. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, as always, to the Sounder Bombs for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, I'm very curious. What what band are you recommending based on camp? See, here's the thing. is like I'm not finding something in line with like Burt Bacharach or Stephen Sondheim. So I had to go maybe in like the licensed music department for this movie because it, it has some of the weirdest choices for music where there's the Rolling Stones. There's the replacements for some reason. Alice Cooper shows up for a hot sec for some reason. Hi, pre-chasing cars snow patrol. Hello, Oasis. Why are you here? I don't understand who the licensing department was for this movie. I do want to share something before you nominate because I forgot to mention this because I just think that you're going to love it because it'll allow you to do something that I know you love to do in your spare time. Okay. Um, But (laughs) so you mentioned Wild Horses earlier and apparently apparently when he had written the script, uh, Graf wanted to do... uh, he wanted to do Sweet Melissa by the Almond Brothers, and the Almond Brothers were like, hey, fuck you. No, you can't afford us. So then the music supervisor was like, okay, what's your next choice? And he was like, Wild Horses, which is a Rolling Stone song. And for those that don't know, the Rolling Stones are like notorious uh, for charging people ass loads of money to license their music. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the... of the entire Cruel Intentions budget went to getting Bittersweet Symphony because it samples Rolling Stones. Like, Mm -hmm. they're stingy about that shit. Yep. Um, But apparently, um, they they went all the way up to Mick Jagger, who read the script, and then when found out that the Allman Brothers said no, uh, kind of as a fuck you to the Allman Brothers, they were like, cool, uh, you can have it for $250, which is bananas cheap like Like, that's basically free that's basically free like unbelievable and Sondheim being the good dude that he is uh was like yeah you can 
have whatever you want for my my catalog, which is just so lovely. Anyway, back to your band. That's, that is not the Rolling Stones. That's really nice because uh, I think the Stones are overrated and they haven't lived in reality for 50-some years now. I agree. When I think of the Stones at this point, I guess specifically Mick Jagger, but like they're kind of synonymous the way that like Adam Levine is with Maroon 5 at mm-hmm. this point. Um, all I can think about is the John Mulaney like, Diet Coke! No. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all I think about when I think about the Stones now. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Let's talk about people who are better than the Stones. Hell yeah. Bold claim. <laughs> the band I'm shouting out for this episode, because it's kind of a rootsy licensed movie soundtrack in this musical theater film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going with the band Lady Pills. They do uh, a bit more of like the singer-songwriter, uh, rootsy, bluesy sort of vibe. But uh, they got really good lyrics on their newest album, What I Want, which released a couple months ago. Um, Some of my favorite songs on there are like My Weight, which has like such... There's really good romantic and horny lyrics on this album. Love um, I think the lines are like, let's get closer. uh, We'll do it forever. When you hold my weight, it feels so good. I do like that line. Oh, that's good. Or um, the title track, What I Want... uh, peel the skin from the fruit to devour the sweetness I gave you suck my goodness off your fingers ooh like, horny I like it when it's something stripped down and borderline acoustic like this the lyrics make or break the song and I think since musical theater is largely the same way I think that that is a, is a good way to insert this band into the theme of camp Beautiful. I love it. All right, friends. That is all. We will be back next week. <laughs> For my birthday, we're talking about Grease too. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait. I promise not to scream the whole time. It'll be a great reprieve oh. from the last two weeks. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're into the fun zone now. All right, friends. We are out of here. As always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. discussing stopping the show and I just thought how disappointed all the kids would be. You scheming little bitch. Please, I'm a child. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.